So winter came early this year. Hey, I'm from South Florida. Anything below 70 degrees is winter, okay? I went outside to watch the dog, walk, uh, walk the dogs, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to put a long sleeve shirt on. I, even, I did some running this morning. I even put a long sleeve shirt on while I was running. It was cold to me. So winter came early. Um, okay, this morning... We're going to continue our study through Matthew chapter 12. This is a long chapter. Uh, we'll still have one more teaching next week to get through Matthew chapter 12. So we'll be in verses 38 to 45. Okay, 38 to 45. Uh, let's remember a couple things. Last week, we talked about this story where Jesus cast out this demon of this man that caused him to be blind and mute, right? So Jesus cast out this demon, and now the man can, can see, and now he can speak. And we talked about how that's what the enemy tries to do in each of our lives before we come to faith. We talked about how the enemy tries to blind us blind our minds from the truth of the gospel. Because if he can blind our minds, then it blinds our hearts. Our hearts won't be transformed. Therefore, we won't communicate the gospel. And there was a lot that we talked about last week. But remember, the Pharisees, they're accusing Jesus of doing this miracle and all of his miracles by the works of Beelzebub, right? Of Satan, so they're accusing him of doing these powerful deeds by the work, by the power of Satan. So Jesus makes this very logical argument to help the Pharisees understand how ignorant their argument is. It's like a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Why would Satan cast out demons that are working for him? It just doesn't make sense. So he uses this logical argument to penetrate their minds because he's trying to make it make sense to them so that it will affect their hearts. He wants them to be transformed by the same power by which he cast out this demon. What, what was that power? That power was the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's when he talks about the only unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you deny the work of the Spirit, then you're denying the only power by which you can be forgiven, okay? So we're going to see here in this text uh, as this interaction with the Pharisees continues that Jesus is going to bring further clarity um, as to the repercussions and consequences for not only denying his work, but denying the work of the Spirit. Remember, he's trying to warn them, the only unforgettable, you can say what you want about the Son, you can say what you want about the Father, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because if you deny the work of the Spirit, there's no hope for you. There's no salvation for you. So we're going to see here as Jesus continues to have this conversation with the Pharisees, it's the same section. Um, he's going to continue to make a couple more logical arguments to try to help the Pharisees understand, but he's going to end this and really talk about demon possession, right? Because he cast the demon out previously. And in verses 43 and 45, he's going to discuss that a little bit. And what he's trying to get across to the Pharisees is if they continue to deny his works, their situation is only going to get worse. Okay, which brings me to the title of this message. Deny Christ's works and it will only get worse. 
Simple, right? Deny Christ's works and it will only get worse. Jesus is going to continue to warn the Pharisees that if they deny his works, he's doing so many different things, right? He's casting out demons, he's healing people, he's preaching in power, he's giving them every logical reason he could possibly give them to help them realize that he truly is the Messiah. He truly is the king that they've been waiting for for so long. And he's warning them that if they continue in their religious lifestyles, they're going to open them up, open themselves up for not only spiritual attack, but ultimately judgment and condemnation. Okay, and you'll understand that a little bit better when we get to verses 43 to 45. So we talked about last week how the enemy... Um, purposes to blind the unbeliever from understanding and grasping the gospel, right? There's a veil he puts over the eye of their mind, in other words. And that's what he's doing with the Pharisees. They're blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ, of who he actually is. So we see this is a strategy of Satan to blind people from the truth of the gospel. But we're also going to see within that blinding, that blinding strategy of the Satan, there's a few uh, specific strategies that he uses. If you flip with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we'll get into Matthew right after this, I promise. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. We see a couple of these, come, a couple of these things come up, so I want to uh, just mention it real quick. These are the tactics of the enemy. Um, look at verse 15 to get some context. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world right? The enemy is the ruler of this world. Those are the three things that he'll use pretty much every time. The lust of the flesh, our fleshly desires, the lust of the eyes, things that appeal to the eyes, and the pride of life. We all have that pride in us. We're going to see the enemy. He's used some of these things to blind the Pharisees from the truth of who Jesus is. And we see some indication of this in this first verse. Uh, if you pick it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says here, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They call him teacher. They're already minimizing his identity, right? The people already referred to him, the multitudes. Could this be the son of David? Many people there recognize that this is the Messiah, but not the Pharisees and the scribes. The teacher, they're minimizing, oh, he's just a teacher. He's just a rabbi. This is the pride of life. They think they're better than Jesus. Just the fact that they're calling him teacher is like this uh, low blow to Jesus. He's much more than a teacher. And so how often today do people say, oh, Jesus was a good teacher? He ain't having that. He was much more than a teacher. That's what the Pharisees thought. And look what he says to, the, to them. So they say, show, he says, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They're asking Jesus to show them a sign. Now, this is ridiculous. In the same context, he just cast out a demon, right? And he's been healing people. He's been healing lepers. He's been doing all these different things. He's proven who he is by the things that he's done, 
right? But still, they want to ask Jesus, hey, show us a sign. This is appealing to the lust of the eyes. I I need to see for me to believe. Let me see, and then I'll believe. But Jesus has already showed them. The problem isn't that they need another sign. The problem is is that they really don't want to believe. They don't want to make Jesus their king. They don't want Jesus to be their Messiah because they're their own kings. They have authority. They're the spiritual leaders of the day. They say what goes. And many of these religious leaders at this time, they're rich because they're misusing the temple, the money changers, and they're selling the the lambs and the oxen and all these different animals so that they can gain money. There's some that say that Caiaphas, the high priest, was a multimillionaire. Come on, as a priest? Really? Doing the work of the ministry? Please. So they really don't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What they're looking for Jesus to do is to give them another reason not to believe. See, they had that encounter in the synagogue earlier in the chapter and they had the man with the withered hand and they're like, if he heals the man with the withered hand, then we can say we don't believe in him because there's no healing to be done on the Sabbath. Who said that? You were God. Jesus says, is it, is, it, is it not lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? So they, we see them trying to set Jesus up, Jesus up in all these different circumstances and all these situations, not so that they will believe, but that they can find another reason not to believe, to discredit him. So they'll sit there and they'll, well, if he does these things, then we can have another reason not to believe who he is. They just cast out a demon. Jesus just cast out a demon. And their logical explanation is he did it by the power of Satan because it didn't break any of their laws this time. So they're like, uh, 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 it, it was by the work of Satan that he did it this time. So that's what they're looking for. They're just looking for Jesus to do something else so that they can continue to falsely accuse them. But we can do this as well. We can, we can ask Jesus, show me. God, I want to see. But we're called to look to Jesus, not signs. They're asking for a sign. We're called to look to Jesus Brings me to my first point. Look to Jesus, not signs. Look to Jesus, not signs. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're called to look unto Jesus. We're not called to look for signs. And I'll explain in detail. See, when we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, it will motivate us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's the exhortation that Paul gives the church here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. You could write it down. He simply says, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're called to walk by faith. We're not called to walk by sight. See, it's not about following signs. It's about following Jesus. Jesus asks us to follow him regardless of whether or not he gives us signs. If he gave us signs all the time, if everything was so clear, then we'd be following the signs and we wouldn't be following Jesus. So often I'll hear people say this like, like uh, talking to people about the Lord and evangelizing, things like that. Well, if God would just show up in my room, I would believe, and then I'd follow him. If he just showed up, hey, he appeared to Moses, he appeared to all these different people. If he just showed up in my room, then I'd believe in him. Like, eh, maybe for a little bit. 
You'd believe in, to believe in him until the next time you asked him to show up in your room again. And then you'd have this religion that was based on, I'll do it if I see God, but if I don't see God, I'm not going to do it. If I see him, I'll follow him. If I don't see him, I'm not going to follow him. So then you're following signs and you're not really following the Lord. He desires us to walk by faith and not by sight. If we get in this habit where we're following signs, when the signs cease, we'll stop following him. God desires us to walk by faith, not by sight. When we're constantly looking for signs, we can be deterred from walking by faith. Now, the truth is God will provide signs sometimes, and we see that in, in Scripture, but we can't be dependent on the signs. He wants us to walk by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word, right? It's Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I want to look at a specific word in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 7, that points us to a sign that we should follow, okay? Here's a sign. We're, call, we're called to walk by faith. We're called to be led by the word, which I'll get into next. All right, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Lord says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. Here's a word that points to a sign that points back to Jesus, the word of God. So the word, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is pointing to a specific sign. Hey, you want a sign to follow? You want a sign to look for? Look for the virgin birth. Because when you see the virgin birth, surely you will know, Emmanuel, God is with you. God is walking with you. When you see the virgin birth, follow that sign because that's going to lead you to the one that you ought to follow. That's going to lead you to God in the flesh. That is going to lead you to the word of God, another name for Jesus. Pick it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says a wicked and perverse generation seeks for signs. Jesus already did plenty of signs. The virgin birth had happened. So many things pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. But the problem with the Pharisees, not only do they not want to believe, belief goes beyond logic. It's a, it's a heart thing. If you have a hard heart, you won't believe. That's what Paul says. He says, I had a hard heart of unbelief. That's why I persecuted Christians. That's why I did the things that I did. When we have hard hearts, we don't leave room for belief. The Lord has to come in there and soften our hearts to give us a little room so that we can believe. The problem with the Pharisees and the reason that they're seeking after signs is because they have hard hearts of unbelief. This is the second point. 
Be led by the word, not your heart. Be led by the word, not your heart. See, if they were looking for the signs that they should have been looking for, when the virgin gave birth to Jesus, they would have recognized this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited for King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the sign we were supposed to follow, but they're not following the signs that the scripture already gave them. They're looking for more and more signs because their hearts have deceived them. Their hearts have um, led them astray. The word of God is literally standing right in front of them and their hearts are convincing them that he isn't who he says that he is. But that's the tendency and that's the nature of our hearts. It's Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful Above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Who can know it? Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Our hearts deceive us and convince us things that aren't true. It convinces us of, of lies. It convinces us to trust ourselves more than the word. You ever find yourself in that? I trust myself. I don't know about the, uh, I'll trust myself over trusting the word of God. I'll lean on my own logic and own understanding. And if my own logic and my own understanding doesn't line up with the word of God, then the word of God must not be true. Because I know my logic and my understanding is on point, right? Right? You ever think that? I know what I know. And if it doesn't line up with the word, then that means the word's wrong. It's like, no, wait a minute. You're being led by your own heart. You're being deceived. You're going down a very sketchy path. That path is going to lead to destruction. What does the word say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Trust the Lord. Trust the word. Be led by the word of God. Be led by Jesus don't let your heart deceive you into thinking that you know more than you do or you're wiser than you truly are because this was the problem with the Pharisees. See, the Lord will um, give us signs sometimes. He'll give us clarity sometimes as far as exactly what he wants us to do, the next step in life or the next direction in moving forward. But we have to be looking to him in his word. Sometimes he'll give us general direction and sometimes he'll give us specific direction. Sometimes he'll give us that general direction. He'll say, hey, you just got to trust me with the rest of this. Just keep walking by faith. Just keep trusting my word. Trust and know what you know already. Trust what you know through the word of God, not what your heart is deceiving you in. Trust the word of God. Walk in the word of God, which will lead you to walk by faith and not by sight. As time goes on, I'll fill in the gaps of your understanding. We see this um, in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 16. Um, Both of those. Okay, when Paul, he gets called by Jesus on the road to Damascus after he has this encounter and he accepts the Lord. The Lord comes to him in a bright light. Look what Jesus says in 
Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So we see Paul, he had this general calling on his life, right? He knew he was called to preach the gospel essentially to all nations. He knew he was called to be a, a, a missionary type. You see him doing that in Acts, right? And he's just called to preach the gospel. The word of God told him, here, here's your general calling in life. Your general calling is to be a missionary and to preach the gospel to all nations, okay? So Paul, he knows that. He knows this is the direction from the Lord, and he attempts to do it. And after his first missionary journey, we see um, in Acts chapter 16, he goes to go out again. And look what happens here. Follow me. Acts chapter 16, it says, Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And they had come to Mysia, Myasia, whatever you, however you say it. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not prevent, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, Mysia, Myasia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with them, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Follow me. Paul knows the word of God said. Jesus said, hey, you're called, you're a chosen vessel of mine to preach the gospel to all nations, to Gentiles, to Jews, to everyone, okay? Now, Paul is attempting to walk in the direction from the Lord. I'm gonna keep preaching the gospel everywhere I go. He's walking by faith and not by sight, okay? So, in his efforts to walk by faith and fulfill this calling that God placed on his life, he tries to go to Asia, and what happens? The Spirit prevents him the Holy Spirit wouldn't permit them to continue to go down this path they were trying to go. Paul's heart was to walk by faith and follow the Lord, follow the word and direction that he was given, but the Spirit prevented him. And then what happens? After that, after he's walking by faith and not by sight, he takes, goes a couple different directions. Each time he gets corrected by the Lord, and then what happens? He gets a vision. See, we want sight to come before faith, but faith become, comes before sight. He's walking by faith, then the vision comes. Now I'm gonna give you clarity. You've honored me. You've tried to do what I've called you to do, Paul. You've, uh, you've attempted to fulfill this calling as a missionary and preach the gospel, okay? We weren't going this way. We weren't going that way. We're going my way. And as you're walking by faith, I'm gonna give you clarity, a specific vision, and he gives them the vision to go to Macedonia to speak to this jailer that he's called to speak to, and many believe that this is where the church of Philippi actually started, that letter to the Philippians. But it's so interesting how we desire to be led by sometimes our hearts or our own understanding, but we see here Paul, he's led by the word, and then the vision comes after he's led by the direction from the Lord, and he's walking by faith. Then the sight comes. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. He just said, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of 
of the earth. What's the sign of Jonah? It's the gospel. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, where was Jesus for three days and three nights, essentially? In the belly of the earth, right? And then just as Jonah was spit out of the mouth of the big fish, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He says, you want to follow a sign? No sign is going to be given to you other than the gospel, okay? So when you see me crucified, when you see me die, buried, and rose again, rise again on the third day, that's the sign that you need to follow because that's exactly what my words are saying I'm gonna do. Jesus talks about his resurrection time and time again in so many different ways. He's trying to get this message across to them. When you see this happen, okay, this is the sign you need to be looking for. Not any more miracles, not any more healings, this miracle, this specific thing, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, um, for some of you Bible students out there, there's controversy about this about the three days and three nights, um, but it's easily uh, explained. So Jesus technically wasn't, when you look at the scriptures, buried for three days and three nights, right? He was crucified on a Friday. Um, he was buried early Friday evening. Um, and then Sunday morning, he rose again, okay? But when you understand the culture and the context of that day, when they say three days and three nights, See, a portion of a day equals a whole day, okay? So when you're talking about culture and context, Jesus didn't contradict himself. It's not like Jesus was like, oh man, I resurrected too early. I was supposed to resurrect after the night came. It's like, no, he didn't mess up, you know? It's the culture and the context by which they spoke. A portion of a day, so a portion of Friday is a whole, whole day. Saturday, whole day. Sunday, a portion of Sunday still equates to a whole day. That's three days. Um, you can look into that further if you would like, but I think it's important because sometimes, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't buried for three days and three nights. It's like, okay, you got to understand culture and context and the words that he's using. Picking it up in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and a, indeed a greater than Solomon is here. What's Jesus saying here? What was the story of Jonah? Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh, right? Reluctantly, he went, right? He tried to get away. It didn't happen. So he preaches to Nineveh, and what do they do? They repented, okay? They, they repented at the message of Jonah, Jesus is saying there's one greater than Jonah here. I'm a more powerful preacher, and not only that, I have a little, a little better moral authority under my belt. I'm obedient to God, okay? My message should be taken more seriously than even Jonah's was. And the judgment that's going to come upon you is not just going to be death physically, but eternally. My message is a much more important message to receive than that of Jonah's. Okay, so there's so many different things to this, but in all ways, Jesus is a more powerful preacher than Jonah because he's God in the flesh. And what, what um, he's really getting at here is, hey, if the Ninevites, these enemies of God, repented, okay, you guys are called to be uh, leaders of, of God's house. You're God's spiritual leaders, 
If God's enemies repented at the message from Jonah, then you should repent at the message of God's son whom you claim to serve, okay? And then he says, um, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to meet Solomon, right? She wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And what Jesus is saying here, that when she heard the wisdom of Solomon, she repented. She was looking for truth. Solomon gave her truth. She recognized who God truly was. What's Jesus saying here? Well, who was Solomon? Solomon was a son of David. Jesus is the son of David. He's the long-awaited son. So not only does he have a greater title than Solomon, but he's also wiser than Solomon. Wait a minute, Solomon was the wisest king that ever walked the earth until Jesus came. Saying, I'm even wiser. My preaching, more powerful than Jonah's. You might want to listen to this message. My wisdom, it's wiser than the wisest man that ever walked the earth. You might want to listen to what I have to to say because the Ninevites and the queen of the south, they both repented from these two men. If you don't repent, the judgment that awaits you is exceedingly abundantly beyond what was going to happen to them. Why? Because they have the Son of God standing in their midst. They have every reason to believe. If Jesus preached this message to the Ninevites or the Queen of the South, they would have been like, oh, okay, I repent. But not the Pharisees. Their hearts are so hardened. They're so wicked. Verse 43 says, when an unclean spirit, it's a demon, goes out of a man, He goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be also, so so shall it also be with this wicked generation. Okay. So there's a few things. We'll break this down a little bit better. But what Jesus said, okay, this demon comes out of a man, but his house is still empty. And if that house is still empty, that means that there is no Jesus living in that house. And you'll understand this better, but I want to make the point. This is the third point. An empty house leads to an empty hope. An empty house leads to an empty hope. Jesus is specifically speaking to the scribes and Pharisees about the consequences of them not receiving him. Hey, if you, I just cast this demon out of this man earlier, and he's using that as kind of an illustration, the blind and mute man. But if that man isn't filled with me, if he's not filled with the spirit, then there is no hope for him. If you have an empty house, You have no hope. The only reason we have hope is because Jesus is living in our house. Now look at what he says here. Verse 44. Then he says, I will return to my house, speaking of the demon, from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. This is a picture of religiosity. My house is empty. It's swept. It looks nice. It's kept in order but it's just that, it's empty. Anyone ever hear, anyone ever tell you, hey, you really need to clean up your act. You really need to get your life together. Come on, don't act like your parents never told you that when you were younger. (laughs) My parents used to tell me that all the time. 
You need to clean up your act. You need to get your life together. What are they saying? Your house is in disarray. It's in disorder. And they're trying to lead us to practice what? Righteousness? Religiosity? If I just get all my stuff in order in my house, then maybe I can be protected from the enemy? Not happening. Religiosity can't protect you from the enemy. No matter how clean your house is, that's not going to protect you from, specifically, he's talking about demon possession, but even the influence of the enemy. See, demons can only enter empty houses. No matter how clean they are, if they're not filled with Jesus, they can still enter there. But if your house is filled with the Holy Spirit, then you can't be possessed by demons. No matter how dirty it is, is it that the Holy Spirit, when we invite Jesus to come in, it's not like the house is clean already, right? We're a work in process. He's purifying us over a lifetime, okay? So he comes into our dirty houses and he's the one that starts making it clean. It's not us. We just try to clean up our act and then everything's going to be okay. That's not how it works. He's going to clean us. He's going to purify us. And that only happens if we're accepting the work of the Spirit. We're inviting Jesus into our hearts. We're inviting the Holy Spirit into our house. And then that cleansing process takes place. This brings me to my fourth point. A filled house leads to a blessed hope. A filled house leads to a blessed hope. There's no hope for heaven if you don't have the indwelling spirit. If your house isn't filled with a spirit, then there is no hope for heaven. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1. says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When we believed, Holy Spirit came, sealed us, the promise of what? Who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. See, the Holy Spirit, when we accept the gospel, he comes in, he dwells within us and seals us for the day of redemption. He seals us for the opportunity to experience heaven. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't have hope for heaven, okay? Because this is all strategic. He was talking about the uh, unforgivable sin earlier, right? So if we don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, not only do we not have hope of heaven, but we can't have hope of protection. We can't have hope to be protected from demonic forces. What do I mean? The only way to be protected from demonic possession is by accepting Jesus into your life, by having your house filled with the Spirit. I'm going to say just a couple verses real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Our body is the temple. The Holy Spirit rules and reigns inside of us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
You remember how Jesus was talking about how the how uh, 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 the illustration of a strong man's house uh, being plundered. What he was saying is, hey, I'm stronger. I'm the stronger man. The enemy is the weaker strong man, though he's strong, but I have the power, I have the authority to plunder his house. I have the authority to wreak havoc on his house. Think of it this way. Jesus reigns in our house. Holy Spirit reigns in our house. He's stronger than the strong man, the enemy. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The enemy doesn't have the power to plunder our house because the one that reigns and rules inside us is the most powerful, okay? In John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my hand, okay? I'm kind of going through this fast because we got to finish soon. I'm almost done. (laughs) He says, no one can pluck you out of my hand, okay? We're in the hand of Jesus. He will protect us from the possession of, of the enemy or demonic possession, but we can be oppressed, okay? We can be oppressed by demons. We can be oppressed by Satan. We can't be possessed, but we can be oppressed, okay? Oppressed is an external thing. Like, who here has gone through spiritual warfare in their life? Yeah, right? Okay, so we, we see there's, there's truth even in scripture that we can be oppressed by demons. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, speaking about this thorn in his flesh, verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We see that Satan was oppressing Paul. And there's a lot to this text. I'm just making the point of us being oppressed. James chapter four, verse seven says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We only need to resist him if he's oppressing us, if he's coming against us, right? So resist the devil, eventually he will flee. So Christians, Jesus has given us insight into demon possession. We can't be uh, possessed by a demon, but we can be oppressed by a demon. But there's also um, another biblical principle I wanna pull from this, okay? And speaking of this filled house, Filling your actual house, yes, your, your temple with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's good. But think about your actual house. Our houses should be filled, not just with the Spirit, but with the body of Christ. What do I mean? You know, he talked about this religious person. He's using this example to get to the hearts of the Pharisees. Yeah, they tidied up their house. They made it look real nice. It was put in order, but it was empty. Not only is the Holy Spirit not there, but the body of Christ isn't there either. There's not people there. See, we as believers are called not to just fill our temple with the Holy Spirit, but fill our house with the body of Christ. What do I mean? 
It's leaving that open door policy. It's allowing people to come to your house, to to engage, to come to your house and engage in spiritual things, to be a part of what God's doing, not just in this house, but your house, even your home, back home, that open door policy. You, You think about, many of you have large families here, Think about the times in your life where you've had like guests come over or missionaries that needed a place to stay or maybe you've never done anything like that and maybe your house is like, hey, it's just enough for me and my family. We don't have enough room. We can't have the body of Christ come stay at our house at, at random times that aren't planned out throughout the year. But I'm telling you right now, when we, when we cultivate that environment where it says, hey, it's an open door policy. Anybody can come and go. The amount of spiritual growth that happens is amazing. What do I mean? It's like, we have a guest bedroom at our house and that house is always open, but almost never open, that, that, uh, that room. It's almost o- always open, but never open. There's always someone staying there. It's like it, right when someone else leaves, there's another person coming in, whether it's friends, family members, people in ministry, people that just need a place to stay. And you know what it does for us? Now it's just not like, okay, it's me and my wife and the puppies. Now it's like we have this extra person here and it helps me to be accountable. It helps me to practice what I'm preaching. It helps me to say, no, this isn't just having a guest. Babe, this is an opportunity for us to magnify the name of Jesus. Like, we get to be an example of what a godly relationship looks like. And we're not always perfect. They see us argue and things like that. <laughs> or they'll hear us through the wall or whatever. But it's an opportunity. When I, we fill our house with the body of Christ, it's an extra form of accountability. And it's so encouraging. And even this summer, I've probably had five or six different people stay at that house, stay at our house. And we have a little apartment. We don't even have a dining room. Like our apartment's tiny, but we have two bedrooms and it's like, yeah, anytime. Yeah, come and stay, come and be a part of. We want to invite you into our house so that you can see what God's doing in our house. We want to fill our house because we know in filling our house, it makes us better believers. It makes us better Christians. We add the accountability. We add the fellowship. We add all these things that are really what the church is called to be doing anyways. I know many of you are like, but I like my house well kept and in order. I want it clean, okay? I get it. My sister's like that. You have to take off your shoes every time you enter the house. I've messed up and been yelled at so many times and it's so annoying. You cannot wear your shoes in the house. Like you can't even put on your workout shoes like by the front door. You got to go outside. And we can, I'm messing with my sister. She's great. I love her. But so often we can find ourselves in this place like, hey, no, I, I want to keep my house nice and neat and clean. You know, I don't want to have a lot of people over because then it's going to get dirty. But yeah, where there's people, there's going to be dirt. People, there's going to be problems. But what's more important for you, for you to keep your house clean or for you to have your house filled with the body of Christ? Just throwing it out there. You know, I appreciate a clean house, but I appreciate a filled house even more. Verse 45, he says, Then he goes, goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Show it, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. What Jesus is saying here is, if I don't fill your house... Okay? I might do all the works in the world. 
If I cast out demons, if I heal people, I can do all these different things. But the greatest thing I can do for you is the miraculous work of redemption. And if I'm not in your house, that work is never going to take place. And if you don't receive me into your life, receive me into your house, your condition's only gonna get worse. This demon, he's gonna get seven of his friends, he's gonna come back, and he's gonna wreak even more havoc on your house. See, it's gonna just get worse before it ever gets better. We can clean up our acts, we can get our lives together. This reminds me of addiction and just sometimes people in, in rehab facilities, AA, and I, they don't, I've done all that. I have nothing against NA, AA, anything 12 steps. Uh, Bill W. was a Christian, and those 12 steps, he pulled them from the Bible. So um, no issue with that, but what, what can happen is we can decide, okay, I need to get my life cleaned up. I need to get my life in order, swept clean, all these different things. And we clean our house and we sweep our house and everything's all good for a little while. But if the house isn't being filled with Jesus, then it's just a matter of time before the enemy is going to come back and wreak havoc. And what he's saying here is it's going to be seven times worse. And any of you that's ever struggled with addiction or have had that past, you know relapses, doesn't get better. It's not like this one will be an easy road. It gets worse and worse and worse every single time. Because why? Your house was clean, but it wasn't filled. You didn't accept that redemptive work of Jesus. So now, yeah, you might last for a time period, but what you're going to do is either, maybe you even overcome the addiction, but you're just going to replace that with some other religious thing. Because the addiction is just a symptom. The problem is the heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees. Let me in your house. Let me get to your heart. It's your heart that needs to change. You can do all the sweeping, all the cleaning, all the works that you want. But if you deny my work in redeeming your heart and transforming your heart, then you're hopeless. And you are these people, this person that I speak of, encountering these demons. And that's the heart of what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees. If you deny this work in your life, you're going to be in a far worse condition than when I first came. See, the Pharisees were so focused on their works that they were missing the works that Jesus was doing in their life. They were distracted by all their doing that they weren't considering what he had already done, what he was doing, the signs that are already pointed to these miraculous works, a virgin birth, all these different things that he had done. But they continued to deny the work, deny the work, deny the work, and they left themselves in a far worse situation. For us, I just want to encourage you to be people that look for the work of Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying look for signs, okay? Be led by the word and look for what Jesus is doing in your life. Don't get so focused and distracted by what you're doing that you miss what he's doing because God's doing a lot. God's doing a lot in this church right now, you know? And, and, and you guys all get to be a part of it. We all get to be a part of it, but we get so caught up with our busyness and our routine and our religious acts that, they, we, that we miss the work of God in our life because the works were happening right in front of them and they wanted more because they were missing it. They were blinded to it. So my prayer for each and every one of us is that our eyes would be open to it. We'd see the work of God in this church, in our personal lives, in our family's lives, 
And we, unlike the Pharisees, would embrace that work and not deny it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this story. Lord, I pray um, that you would open our eyes to see what you're doing in our lives, God, that we would see your work in our lives. God, that we would recognize that, yes, your grace is sufficient and the work you did on the cross was enough, God, but you're still doing stuff, and I pray that we wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't be deceived by the enemy. We wouldn't be blinded, God, that we would come alongside you, walk with you, and be a part of what you're doing, the work that you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen.